quick reminder before we get started here. Next week, one service, 10 o'clock, outside. It's Indiana. I'm sure it will not be muggy. It will be great, all right? So I hope, I hope you'll come to that. My name is Blair. I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint. And this morning, we're going to talk about a friction in your life. Something that kind of, um, I, I think it's a big one for a lot of people. I hear them talk about it, hear them share. I'm going to talk about change. And uh, for a lot of us, we really don't care for it. Uh, it could be big change, a change you have at home. Maybe um, if you have kids, you just wait six months and there's a new stage you think you're dealing with and it's always kind of changing there and difficult. But it could be a change with your job. It could be a change with your health where stuff happens and all of a sudden it's, it could be a small change that shouldn't be that big of a deal, but it starts disrupting your life. Like they change the road you drive on to work and they put it in construction. All of a sudden, that's a hassle now and you're on edge by the time you get to work. Why? Because they just change the road. Sometimes you change. You're different. And, and that kind of change can be really disrupting. Now, it just depends kind of on you. Some people love it. Some people say, I like change, and some people hate it. I think there are even boundaries for people who like change. I know because I like change, and two months ago, my wife came to us and said, listen, family, for 27 years now, we have had pizza on Friday nights for dinner for that whole time, and we're in a rut. And I was like, yeah, it's a spectacular rut. What's the problem? I don't care if you call it a rut. Just take it out of the oven before it burns. That's all I care about. We have a little issue with that in our house, so I just thought I'd throw that in there, right? So I was like, listen, why? She's like, we need to eat healthier, so I, I, I get on it, right? It's got, it's got some grains. It's bread. It's got vegetables. It's got dairy. It's got protein. It's like manna, right? God could sustain somebody on pizza for the rest of their lives every day, and everybody would be fine. She didn't buy it. And luckily, she hasn't been militant. But in the last two months, there have been two Friday nights where we did not have pizza. And one of those nights, we had salad. <laughs> Not as a side. It was the whole meal. See what I'm saying? It was messed up. So, so even I, I like change. I can embrace change. I'm good with that. But even I have my boundaries. But, but the kind of change I want to talk to you about isn't necessarily that stuff. It's the kind of change that God rolls into your life and asks you to embrace. Now, it could be some of those other things because God has, God has his fingers on lots of stuff, so he might ask you to change some other stuff. But what happens when God comes to you and says, I want you to change an attitude that you have. I want you to change a way of thinking that you possess. I want you to change this belief that you have in your, in your heart. And just because God asks for the change doesn't suddenly make it fun and something we want to embrace. What if it's the kind of change where God comes to you and he, and he prods you to do something that's not normally what you would do? 
It's outside of your comfort zone. And, and you know this is from God. Like, he's pressing on you to do this. And you, you have a choice to make. This morning, I want to I take you into the scriptures where something like that happens. Where God's about bringing about a change. And, and in this case, he's going to do it through people. Many times he does. He wants to bring about a change, and so he taps somebody and says, I want you in. And I'm hoping that as we spend some time here and look at how they respond to it, that when, when God taps on your life, when he prods you for a change that you know is from God, that you'll have the courage to embrace it. Because we're going to watch what happens in the story, and I think some stuff will make sense to us. Now, I'm going to take you back into what um, we often refer to as the Old Testament. I don't like calling it that. I think um, that communicates that it might be old and irrelevant. I don't buy that at all. Um, I like to call it the Tanakh. That's the Hebrew scriptures. It's, they use the same scriptures. It's part of our, our Bible. And so I want, I want to take you into this. And in it, the reason we spend time there and look at it is because it's got truth. And I'm going to take you to a section of scripture where there's things in it that you'll read that are hard. It's hard to go, why is this in here? This is kind of disturbing. This is kind of rough. But let me give you a hint. When you read sections of scripture like that, pay attention to what's happening with the human nature. Because uh, we're going to look at a story that's over 3,000 years old. And so the circumstances, the culture, they're really different. Hard to wrap your mind around that stuff. But the human nature, if you're paying attention to that, you're going to go, oh my, that's just like me. I've thought that way. Yeah, because this is about human nature. So I want to take you into a book in the Tanakh. It's called Judges. And in that book, um, God has... Uh, decided to be the leader of Israel. There's no king. This is kind of a cool time in Israel's history. God has tapped a couple people with, with specific roles that help him lead the nation. One's a judge, one's a prophet. God, he speaks through the prophet. He asks the judge to uphold the laws, to do what's right. And so um, the book of Judges, if I, were, if I were to kind of boil it down, I would tell you it's like a cyclical thing is what you read where people choose to follow God, then after a while they reject him, God allows them to be captive by another um, country, after a while they plead for his mercy, he raises up a judge and a prophet, or he, or he just kind of asks them to move, they are already in place at times, they, they help rescue Israel, and then they go back to following for a while, and after a little while, they. It just keeps going in this circle. So I want to take you to Judges chapter 4. And by the time we get to Judges chapter 4, that cycle has already happened a couple times. They followed, rejected, in captivity, rescued. And, and what we find in verse 2 of Judges 4 is they're back in the captivity cycle. They had rejected God and God let a guy named Jabin, who's a Canaanite, um, kind of oppress Israel. He's got a general named Sisera. 
And Sisera commands an army of 900 iron chariots, and Israel cannot stand against them. So when he says, I want your food, they give him the food. When he says, I want your money, they give him the money. When he says, I want your people, they do it because they have nothing to stand against this guy. And God hears Israel crying out for relief. And he goes, I'm going to bring about rescue, which means I'm going to raise up a judge and a prophet to do that. Except in Judges chapter 4, there's something unique that happens. Um, Verse 4 introduces us to the judge. Her name is Deborah. Now, um, it is unique for her to be in this position. The gender makes that unique. It it was not unheard of, but it's rare for a woman to be in this kind of position. Um, But she's in this kind of position. um, And it's not just rare that she's the judge. It turns out she's also the prophetess. She's both. She holds both offices at the same time. The only other person to do that was Samuel. So she has, she has a unique position as judge. People come to her and she says, that's right, that's wrong, stop doing that. She lays down the law, she holds people to the law. And they would actually come and seek out her judgment. And as a prophetess, they had learned to understand that God had a special relationship with her, would communicate with her, and then she would say, this is what God said. And, and they had learned that she was trustworthy. Like she... She validly gave out God's word, didn't change it for her benefit. So they knew the words from her were solid. So when God moves to rescue his people, he taps Deborah and says, I'm starting with you. I'm I'm gonna explain to you how this is gonna go and I want you to then communicate to the right people so that we can get this on the road. We're going to rescue Israel. And in verse 6, we see Deborah acting on it. God's communicated with her. She calls Barak, the son of Abinoam, and and she says this to him. He would be what we would know as the Israelite general, maybe the best way to understand it. Says this, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Not me. I'm not making this up. I'm speaking on behalf of God, and he's giving you this command. It says, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon, lead them up to Mount Tabor. You don't need everybody, you just need 10,000. And I want you to go over to Mount Tabor, and when you get there, I'm gonna draw in Sisera. And when I draw in Sisera, he, he, um, she concludes this in verse seven, and says, and I'm going to give him into your hands. I'm going to give Sisera into your hands. And this oppression that you've been feeling, this domination that you've been living under, it will come to an end. And she's delivered the news from God. Here's the plan. Let's act on the plan. And what happens next is something that I would do. I know because I've done it. I suspect it might be something that you would do, but you're, you're going to be the only one who can evaluate that. Uh, Barak hears what Deborah has to say, and this is how he responds in verse 8. 
If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. He says, you go first. Which is kind of odd because she already did. Her role in this was to hear from God and faithfully pass on those words to the person who was, she was not the military leader. That's not her role. But she's faithfully fulfilled what God has asked her to do. And instead of choosing to obey, Barak says, you go first. You put your reputation on the line. If you put your reputation on, you risk something and then I'll risk something. But I'm not stepping out against 900 chariots on my own. Why? Why is he willing to do that? He's afraid. He's afraid of standing alone. He's afraid of failing. He's he's afraid that he's going to be left holding the bag in front of everybody. And so in his mind, it's safer just to have her risk everything first. You know, we, we look at decisions like this from people in the scriptures that Brock's making and we think, man, Brock, what a loser. And, and what we don't reason through is that the reason he made that decision was because of all the fear that he had that's very similar to us. We do the same thing. And he was being asked to step into uncharted territory. He he did not know how this was going to turn out. He'd been told, I'm going to deliver them into your hands. But he didn't have the details. How? How is this going to turn out for me? I'm not sure how to do this. Do, Do you know why change when God comes to your life and asks you to change? It's so difficult. Because he's asking you to step into uncharted territory. He doesn't come to you with some form of guarantee and say, if you do this, I'll guarantee how this is going to turn out. He comes to you and says, I'm asking you for your obedience. And if you'll step in this direction, I'm going to be with you. But that's it. You have his presence Brock had more, but he was about to head into uncharted territory. And I'll tell you what, I've talked to enough followers of Jesus to know that when the the territory is uncharted, we have second thoughts. It doesn't matter if God's asking for us to step in that direction or not. Well, here's what happens. He says, I'll go if you'll go. Do you recognize that at all? Have you ever done that? I, I grew up, <laughs> I grew up with a group of friends that had the ability to get into some trouble that would start like this. If you do it, I will, right? And because we had a hard time facing down a dare, we would do stupid stuff. I, um... I don't know how old I was. I, I can remember this vividly happening. And I think back and think, man, that was, it was really risky. Uh, I grew up in a Christian youth camp. We had horses. And we would take people on trail rides all day long. 
And there was a couple weeks where the, the camp was just jam-packed. We had tons of kids, tons of activities. So we had stuff that we do in the morning. We had stuff that would go out to overnighters. We would be taking people out on overnighters. It, it was packed. It was so busy that we had actually some trail rides after dinner. That was so rare. We were tired. And we got to Thursday, and all the early morning stuff, all the late night stuff was gone. We still had to do our chores and everything. But Dan knew that we were exhausted, and he came to us, and he said, Hey, guys, I'm going to give you a break. I want to I do something great for you. How about if I cook breakfast for you out in the woods? Um, you finish your chores in the morning, you ride out, I'll cook you breakfast, which we love because we love that breakfast. He would make eggs in bacon grease, and we would, and roast um, dough over the fire. And I, I'm not joking, I would eat 12 eggs plus bacon plus doughboys. It made me so happy. So when he said, yes, I'll do this, I was like, we're in. He left, we finished the stuff, I don't know who got the idea, but somebody decided, I'm going to ride a trail horse instead. Now, trail horses were good for walking in a trail. Nose to tail, that's what they'd done for years, and that's all they knew. If you took them outside of that, they got sketchy. Like, I don't know what's happening here. And they wouldn't listen to you. The horses we rode, when we said, we need to be there now, go, our horses listened to us. We need an instant response. We had, we had like a relationship with our horse. But some, somebody, I don't know who, said, I'm going to ride a trail horse. And we all thought, if they do it, we're going to do it. And we all ended up on the most suspect trail horses that we had these horses did not know what to do out of line, and we were going to run them across the pasture through the woods and go over someplace. And, and our first clue that we were going to have a problem happened 100 yards from the barn. Mike was riding Champ. He goes into the field, and Champ's a bit of a spaz, but fine in line. He's not in line. And he goes to turn, you know, Champ is like, like he's a spaz head, Right? But he, he turns him, and he doesn't know what's going on, and he goes like this, spins sideways, and falls down. We laugh too, right? And the only reason we were able to laugh is because Mike jumped off him at the last second. Otherwise, he could have easily broken his leg. We knew in that moment what we were doing was risky. Did we stop? No! <laughs> No, we rode across a field, we were running across a field, and somebody's on a trail horse that doesn't know how to make decisions because they're not behind somebody, and we came to the end of the field, and it narrowed down, and you had to go down this little hill into the woods, and the horse didn't know which way to go. Have you ever locked up your car, the brakes on your car? He locked up the horse's brakes. Like... It was making a bad decision, and he pulled at the last second. The horse actually sat down on its butt and slid, and they ran into a tree. We were still laughing because we weren't very smart, right? All the signs are there that this is not going to turn out well. Somebody chose Tiny. I don't know why. Tiny would take in air when you would saddle him. And when you walk away, he would let the air out so it wouldn't be tight on his belly. Everybody knew it. 
And every time you put a kid on that saddle, you had to tighten it up and make sure that it was okay. Somebody rode that horse and didn't check the saddle. And we're riding, and all of a sudden it goes like this. And he would have gone underneath the horse, except he grabbed something on the way down. It wasn't smart. Like, it was, the ne- it was the negative side of this. If you do it, I'll do it. But that's the kind of human nature that's going on here. We have this picture unfolding where Barack says, I'll only do it if you do it. And I recognize that because I've done that with a whole bunch of stuff. And it turns out, as soon as she said that, she put, he put all the responsibility back on Deborah. If you want freedom for Israel, Deborah, you have to go first. I did go first. I did my job. I did everything I was supposed to do. And now, unfairly, it's all been laid back at her feet with just the simple request. I'm not willing to go first unless you risk first. It's incredible. As Deborah responds, she says in verse 9, Certainly, I will go with you. She didn't even hesitate. I suspect because she understood that God was the one who was asking for this. She had a sense of confidence in God. And so she said, yes, I'll go. I'll show up. If you need this, that's fine. But, but, certainly I'll go, but... Because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. um, I think sometimes we read this and we think, ah, maybe getting the credit must have been important for the culture. Who looks good? Because they're they're talking about this. I, I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I think what Deborah is pointing out is how this works, period. When when God comes to you and asks you to respond with an attitude, it could be anything, could prod you to move, and you go first, it opens up the possibility that you'll influence other people who are watching your life. In fact, it may be one of the primary reasons that God asked you to be the mover in the first place because there's influence to be had and and apparently you're in a place where your choice to do that has some kingdom impact and so being tapped I want you to do this I want you to be the first one to go I don't want you to lay it off on somebody else See, deep down, you, you know this is true. I, I actually sat down and I started making a list of some people who did first. And I was, I was surprised. Uh, the first service got all of these. Um, I thought one or two would be hard. But I'm, I'm going to give you the name of somebody who did something, or I'm going to give you what they did first, and I want to see if you can tell me their name. Okay? Um, tell me, do you know who the first female aviator was to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. Just yell it out. Wow, so many people knew that one, right? That would be one that everybody would know. 
Uh, Try this one. Who was the first person to walk on the moon? Neil Armstrong. Now it's going to get tough. Who was the first person to run the mile in under four minutes? Who said it? You said it good. Loud. Say it loud. Yell it. Nailed it. Roger Bannister. Like runners know that. They were convinced nobody could run under four minutes until he did it. And suddenly, lots of other people started doing it because he opened the door for it. Who signed the Declaration of Independence first? Say it loud. John Hancock. See, you think you remember his name because he signed it fancy? He was the first. And because of that, he was willing to say, I'm willing to step up to the risk. And, we, and these people who went first are etched in our minds. They're, they're there for us to recall and remember. This ability for you to influence is right there for you to take. And part of the reason I sometimes think that we whiff on this is because we're worried about how it affects us. Those fears that would have stopped Barack from saying yes, we have them in our own lives. And the questions we're asking are, well, how is this going to turn out for me? Is this going to be good for me? How does this affect me? And here's, here's just some news for you. This is really important. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've decided to take on his values at the core of so much that he does, it's about others. Even the choice you make that God says, I want you to step into this change, it's about others. It's about the influence you would have on the people around you who are watching your life. And some of the reasons we don't understand that is because we're never exposed to to somebody who was actually influenced by what we did, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen because this is how God works. People watch what you choose to do and you have the ability to influence. And so when God comes to you and says, listen, I want you to move first, that's what's at stake. When he comes to you and says, listen, I want you to apologize first. And the thought that comes to your mind is, they're 90% wrong. In fact, I'm being generous uh, for my 10%, right? I'm like the sliver. If they'll apologize, I'll apologize, but not until then. God comes to you and says, listen, I want you to share that thing that's going on in your life. I want you to reveal that. And you, you say, I'll do that when they, when somebody else does it, I'll do that. You, you haven't considered that if you don't do it, it might not happen at all. There might not be any kind of sharing at any depth or level. And it doesn't matter because you're waiting for somebody else to go first. There's all kinds of examples 
What happens when God says, I want you to share your faith with somebody at work? And your response back is, I will if they bring it up. But God's like, no, no, I'm, on, I'm, I'm putting an impression on your heart that this is the time for this. And our response is somebody, he's, they're going to have to go first. Or God does ask for that attitude change at home. He asks for that different kind of response from you. And your response is, listen, when they change, then I'll change. But don't expect me to make a change in my life until they, and we have all of these ifs, wins, they, them, and what you've missed is that God had every intention of using you as an influence in somebody else's life because that's how the process works. When, when God comes and prods, it's not just you that he has in mind. He has all of those people who watch you and more do than you know for clues into how living in a way that honors God looks and you get to do that. Now, in the story here, we find that Deborah had said, if you remember, you're not going to get the chance to influence. You're going to lose that. And she said, it's going to be a woman. And if you didn't read the whole story, you'd be tempted to think that what she was doing was she was trying to take credit herself. If I go, I'm going to take credit for Sisera's defeat. It's going to be about me. But you would be wrong. Let me just give you the rest of the story real quick. Um, she goes to Mount Tabor. And I'm going to put it up on the screen. That is Mount Tabor in Israel. That's the valley that they would have had the battle in. You can't see them, but a ring right around that valley is mountains just like that. And the scriptures record that a downfall of rain came. And all of that rain washed off the mountains, came into the valley, and made the chariots worthless. They got bogged down in mud and dirt. And Sisera realizes, I'm in trouble without my chariots because now it's 10,000 guys against the people who would have been to 900 chariots, but the chariots aren't working. Who's going to win? So he jumps off his chariot and he takes off running. And he comes to a tent. And he asks this woman outside the tent if he could have some milk, if she would provide a safe place for him to rest. And she invites him in and gives him some milk and lets him sleep. And while she's sleeping, she goes and grabs a tent peg and holds it. Oh, yeah, just like that. And then she finishes the job. Boom. Right? She's the one. You're like, this is so disturbing. Yeah, it's in the scriptures. It's in the scriptures. She killed the guy. And, and she's the one that Deborah was talking about. Her name's Jail. And, and she's the one, it wasn't, De Deborah wasn't looking for credit herself. In fact, if you're gathering reasons for why you would obey God when he comes to you with uncharted territory in your life, one is influence, and the second reason is this. You'll elevate others. You'll elevate others. You might not even know who they are. You might, you might not know their names, 
but your decision has the ability to spread. And Deborah knew it. She knew what was at stake. In fact, here, this is what's so crazy. Barak understood that if he said no, Israel would stay slaves. He still said no. Because it was too big of a risk for him. But Deborah knew that if I say yes, this has the ability to not only influence everybody who's watching this decision, but it is gonna elevate others in this process. And the same happens for us. When God comes to you and says, you forgive first, and your first thought is, but they're 90% wrong, why would I do that? You would do that because when you choose to go first, it's not so that you can get a guaranteed, they're gonna ask for my forgiveness too. It's so that you can actually model what it looks like to follow Jesus and to fix the junk that you cause, even if it's just 10%. And you have no idea how that influences and elevates the other. It could elevate the relationship by repairing it. You have no idea when God says, I want you to risk and share that thing that's happening in your life. That when you choose to do that, it impacts people who hear that story and identify with that and they may never say anything to you. But that's why God asked you to do it in the first place. It's when he comes to you and said, I want you to make that change at home. And you're like, they have to change first. But you still, you decide, I'm going to follow God here. And I'm going to make this change. I'm going to make this adjustment in my attitude. That it has the ability to elevate the rest of the family and those who watch your family. This is how God does some work in your life. Truth is, I don't, I don't know where your story is right now. I know everybody's on a different journey. And you're at a place where I imagine there's a whole bunch of people in this room where God has been tapping on your conscience for a little while and asking for either a change or for you to step in a different direction. And, and he's not giving you any guarantees about how it's gonna turn out, but you know it's him. And you've been saying, I will win. I will if. And you're missing out. You're missing out on your purpose, the purpose that God has for your life, and you're missing out on the influence and the elevation that you could bring to others. And the question is just quite simple. If you know God's asking, will you go first? Instead of waiting for somebody else to break the ice, if he's asking you, why don't you step into that? Will you embrace the change that God brings into your life? Because he's going to. It's gonna happen. And when it happens, you'll be faced with a decision. You'll be faced with these are the fears, these are the doubts, these are the risks that I have to assess. Or, God, I understand that when you do this, you have others in mind, and I know that's not how our culture thinks, but I'm taking on your values, and I'll do this. And I'll let you use this in other people's lives however you see fit. 
That's the opportunity that sits at your doorstep. And the question you have to ask is, will you? Will you choose to go first or will you shrink back from the change that God's asking from your life and miss the opportunity? You were made to go first. I hope you'll make that choice. Let me pray with you. God, I'm convinced that in this room right now, there's a bunch of people that you've been tapping on. Like you're a God who's constantly at work. You, you love people. And so because of that, you ask us to face some change and to embrace it. And so you've, you've been tapping on people's conscience. You've been asking them to head in a different direction. You've been asking them to make a change at the core. You've been asking for some stuff. And they know it. They know it's from you. And God, in the midst of that tapping, if they're anything like me, they've said, man, I'll wait for somebody else to go first. I'll wait for somebody else to break the ice. I'll wait for somebody else to ask me before I serve. I'll wait for somebody else. And our lives are full of ifs and wins. God, I ask that you would give us a different mindset, an understanding that if we're, if we're about your kingdom, that means we're about other people. And when you come to us and you tap on our hearts, the courage that we display in responding, certainly I will go, is about the influence and elevation that you have in mind for others giving us purpose in life, meaning in life. But God, it's not always about us. And as kingdom followers of yours, accepting that there are bigger things in play is sometimes hard. So I ask that you would help us to wrestle with our fears, wrestle with our doubts, wrestle with these things that hold us back. And may Deborah who is still influencing people 3,000 years later, may her courage influence us to say, certainly God, I will go. Make that real in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.